We'll be continuing in John chapter 1. You'll also want to put a finger on Genesis 22, because we'll be looking at Genesis 22 as well. One thing that the Apostle John does throughout the first chapter of the Gospel of John is highlight a number of the names and titles of Jesus Christ. The disciples at the time may not have known the full significance of all of these titles or names, but we have a much fuller grasp of them. We have all of the scriptures. We have all of the Word of God. Here's just a few. In verse 1, he's called the Word. In verse 1, he's also called God. In verse 9, he's the light. In verse 17, he's Christ. Verse 23, he's the Lord. Verse 30, he's a man. Verses 34 and 49, he's the Son of God. Verses 38 and 49, he's Rabbi. Verse 41, he's Messiah. Verse 49, he's the King of Israel. You can tell that John... The Gospel writer loves the names, the titles of of his Savior. There was actually a New Testament scholar who was presenting at a seminary conference. And for 30 minutes, he just stood up and he read names, titles, references, types of Christ, and then sat down. Those that were there said it was a moving sermon, just listening to the names of our Lord. It makes sense because the entire Bible in some way points to Jesus Christ and His work. This whole book points in some manner to Christ. You might be thinking, well, what about Chronicles? What about Numbers? Yes, in some way it points to Christ. I challenge you to challenge me to find a a part of Scripture that doesn't in some way point to Christ. But this morning we're going to focus on a title that John the Baptist says twice. The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. It's the first time that this title is introduced in a messianic way in the Gospels. It's a familiar title for Christians. But when John the Baptist said this, it was a new thing. That the the, the Messiah would be called the Lamb of God. Maybe it was a prophetic revelation to John the Baptist. Maybe John actually knew of all the references to lambs in the Old Testament, he probably did. But it's full richness and meaning and value we're going to hopefully begin to look at this morning. And we'll continue even next week uh, looking at Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover lamb. But the text this morning is John chapter 1, verses 29 through 36. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray once again. Our Father in heaven, 
We thank You for these Scriptures about Your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would now open our eyes to truth, soften and break hard hearts, unstop stopped-up ears and open blind eyes, encourage our souls. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. We're going to talk about really two things that's going to turn into five things. You'll see what I mean when we get there. First, we're going to talk about John bearing witness once again uh, to the Messiah. And secondly, we'll look at Genesis chapter 22 and how this also is bearing witness to the Messiah, the Lamb of God. But before we look at verse 29 in detail, we're going to look at John's witness in verses 30 through 34, where John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. This is happening on the next day. If we look back to verse 29, on the next day. The next day after what? It's the next day after John the Baptist had been interrogated by the Pharisees and the Levites and the teachers who had come to find out who he was and what he was doing, baptizing. So it's the next day. And he looks at Jesus and said, this is the one who I was talking about. This is the one who I've been talking about in the past, but here he is now. This is the one of whom I said he ranks before me. And this is the second time that the Apostle John mentions this phrase. If you remember in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So the point of John the Baptist is clear. He is God. He is eternal. He was before me. Even though he was born after me, he was before me. In verse 31, he says something that might seem perplexing. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So we don't think that, that John the Baptist is saying that he's never met Yeshua of Nazareth, his cousin, his relative, the son of Mary and Joseph, that he had never met him. What he's saying is he didn't know that Yeshua, his cousin, was the Messiah until God revealed it to him. He didn't know that he was the one of whom he was proclaiming when he called out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord and make straight the desert a highway for our God. He didn't know that he was doing this for his relative, for Yeshua, for Jesus. God had to show him this. John Christostom, he preached in 500 AD, something like that. His, his name actually means golden tongue. He was such a good preacher. But John said that, John Christostom says that John the Baptist's knowledge of Jesus' identity was not from human friendship, but had been caused by divine revelation. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. God showed me this. And when did, did John the Baptist become absolutely certain of this thing? Well, it's in verse 32. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. The focus of the Gospel of John is in that moment when John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. This is what 
basically made the inward knowledge that John the Baptist had, it made it outward. He's, he's now seeing clearly the identity of Jesus. It's made public at Jesus' baptism. And we think that this... That, that John is looking back toward the baptism. He's looking back at what had happened. John the Baptist is saying, this is the man who I baptized. This is the man who I saw the Spirit of God coming down upon him. Um, maybe Jesus had, had been baptized and gone, and you remember he was immediately led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, and now Jesus is coming back from that moment. We know it's sometime after his baptism, regardless when John the Baptist looks at him and says this, this is the one that I was telling you about. This is the one on whom I saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain upon him. Abide is the word. I saw the Holy Spirit abide on him. In John 3, we read that Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. So just as an aside, this isn't to suggest for one moment that this is the first time that Jesus, the incarnate Christ, had the Holy Spirit. And we, we would never say that. He's the God-man. He's, his divine nature is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And He was always and will always be one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But the baptism is the beginning of His public earthly ministry. So it was a visible representation that the Holy Spirit dwells in fullness in this man. And Jesus, without measure. And more than that, in the other gospel accounts, we hear the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost united to do the work, to equip Christ for the work. It was a Trinitarian work. It was ordained by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see this all happening at the baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist says in verses 33 and 34, I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. We know in verse 29 he said, this is the Lamb of God. Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Not meaning the entire world of people who have ever lived. He's not saying that... He's not... Uh, promoting universalism of some kind that everyone who's ever lived has had their sins taken away by Jesus. The world means all people without distinction. Not just Jews. Not just a certain race or a certain descent or a certain time. The world is all people without distinction. Not all people without exception. And Christ atoned for the sins of His people. The sins of everyone for whom He came. And for this reason, John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now we're going to spend just a moment talking about one of the two passages I'll focus on, which most clearly reveal that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And it's fascinating. It's actually something you've probably heard before. Um, if you would turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, which we read, we're just going to see how wonderful is the unity of Scripture. 
John the Baptist certainly knew Genesis 22. He certainly knew Exodus chapter 12. He certainly knew all the references that mention a lamb, this lamb of God. So we're going to talk about three foreshadowings that we see in this particular chapter. The foreshadowing of the love of the Father, the foreshadowing of the planning of the event, and the foreshadowing of the execution of the event talking of the crucifixion, the death and resurrection, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. So God help us as we look at this text for a moment. Genesis 22. Let's see the love of the Father. Genesis 22.2. This is, remember, waiting 25 years for a son, and finally, finally, God gives Abraham a son, a son named Isaac. Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. They were were both old. They had this son in their old age. It brought them great joy to see the fulfillment of God's promise. So the very next chapter, Genesis 22 we see God tell Abraham in verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. The structure of this sentence is of God's word seems very pointed and striking. And at a human level, it could even sound hurtful. This is the only son they've been waiting for. They love this boy. Isaac at this time may have been somewhere between 12 and 22. We we don't really know. But regardless, it comes through in English just fine. You should know that in Hebrew, it's very, very wordy. This is a wordy, wordy sentence. uses a lot more words than is required. I like Matthew Henry's translation of this sentence. He says, Take now that son of yours, that only one of yours, whom you love, that Isaac. So when you think of that, the, in Hebrew, this first part of verse 2 could literally be three words. Take, Isaac, and sacrifice. Three words for the first part of the sentence anyway. But it seems that in some way, God wants to drive the knife into Abraham's soul with each word. He wants Abraham to feel this command. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, your son Isaac, and sacrifice him. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven, what did it say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, or His one and only Son. Certainly you see the connection. Abraham was going to suffer in his obedience, and it would be a costly obedience. It would be a painful thing. Why is God speaking like this? Emphasizing this pain of Abraham. For us. It's for us. 
Certainly it's only a shadow, but it foreshadows just a taste. The sacrifice of his own son, his beloved son. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We glimpse this as a shadow of the great cost of God's own sacrifice of his son. And we cannot look at the sacrifice of Jesus as just some systematic, theologic, necessary thing. It's not just a transaction that must be done. It's not just two plus two equals four. No, this is the Son of God, sacrificed for the redemption of His people. Yes, it was necessary. Yes, this was the only way that we could be saved. But this was costly grace. There's great irony here too. Abraham is to slaughter and sacrifice his son named Laughter. Laughter is killed or was to be killed by his own loving father. We also see great irony in the coming of Christ. The rose of Sharon, the light of the world, the morning star, the son of righteousness, the lamb of God. Slaughtered by his father. He came as a sacrificial lamb. But there's so much more. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So Abraham gathers everything. He leaves early in the morning, and for three days he travels. For three days he walked, and he hadn't told his son what was happening. He told him they were going to sacrifice, but not that he was the sacrifice. So Abraham carried this death on himself for three full days of travel. For three days, Abraham was in great sorrow and confusion. You can imagine the prayers. We don't know exactly what he, he was thinking, but you can imagine. You can also see after the death of Christ, the confusion, the sorrow of all the disciples who had followed him for three years, the great despair. Like Abraham, they felt the death of the one they loved. They felt no joy or consolation for three full days. So we see the great love of a father for a son whom he would sacrifice. We also see the, a shadow, a foreshadowing of the planning of the event. The planning of the event is even foreshadowed in this, in this narrative. In verse 2, it was to be a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which God would tell him. So Abraham rose early. He took two of his young men. He took Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering. And he went to the place about which God had told him. There, there was a plan. Abraham was going to accomplish this plan. There are some who would teach that uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was just a, a tragic event. It was, it, was, it was an accident. It shouldn't have happened that way. That's not what the Scriptures teach, brother and sister. Revelation 13.8, we see that all who dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb 
that was slain from the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan, that His Son would come and be sacrificed for our justification. Notice, too, that God told Abraham to go to a specific place and offer his son as a burnt offering, a specific place. This wasn't just killing his son. This was an act of worship. It was to be done devoutly as a part of a ceremony. Abraham was to compose himself, to order his steps, to walk forward diligently to this thing that was commanded for his son. And we see Abraham doing just that. He ordered the events. He diligently got everything together. And walked forward. He cut the wood. He made the preparations. He brought the fire. And in that day, fire was something you had to carry. There was some kind of thing that you carried that had fire in it. He brought all of those things. He was going to do this thing that the Lord had commanded. The sacrifice was definitely going to happen. In verse 6, we see that he laid the wood of the burnt offering on his son Isaac. And he took the fire and the knife himself, and they both walked up the mountain together to do this this offering, this, this burnt offering. Abraham, we would think, has probably offered animals to God many times in the past. He loved God. He knew the the thing, he knew the ceremony, he knew the routine. He had the fire. After killing the the animal on And placing it on top of the wood, he would burn it. It was a burnt offering. This is one of the reasons why some people think that Isaac's not just a child, that he's he's probably closer to a man. If you've ever carried wood, think of the offering. He's going to have to burn up Isaac's body. That's a lot of wood, and Isaac is carrying this wood. Either he's a really strong boy or he's growing into a man. Regardless, he's strong, whatever age he is. He's carrying the wood up the mountain. He's willingly carrying the instrument of his own sacrifice. He's walking in obedience with his father up this mountain. You might remember, too, that our Lord carried the wood for his sacrifice, he carried his own cross. For a part of the way, anyway. We'll also see that all of this happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. This is what Jesus said over and over after his resurrection. These things had to happen for the scriptures to be fulfilled, or even during his crucifixion, so that all the scriptures would be fulfilled. This would happen. Something would, would take place. The gospel writers knew that he was fulfilling scripture. And every detail of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ had been foreordained and planned from before the foundation of the earth. And we get to see some of that here in Genesis 22. It's communicated by the scripture and the Psalms, the prophets, and even in this narrative of Genesis 22. It was communicated by God to us, to to us. In Psalm 22 where David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried those words on the cross. David said, Dogs encompass me and they have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments 
and cast lots for my clothing. Famously also in Isaiah 53, the the suffering servant, which rabbis do not even read. They never read Isaiah 53 to their people. It's so clear that the the Messiah was despised and rejected by men, uh, borne our sorrows and carried our griefs, was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was buried in a rich man's grave, and it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put, a, put him to grief when he should make an offering for guilt. So we see the foreshadowing and the love of the Father. We see the foreshadowing of the plan. Now we see the foreshadowing of the obedience and the purpose, the, the end results, the substitutionary atonement in verse 7. It begins. So up to this point, it's fascinating to in the Greek, or sorry, in the Hebrew, everything moves really fast until they reach the foot of the mountain. It's like lightning speed to the foot of the mountain. And then the narrative slows way down. And you begin to hear individual conversations and it. It all just slows down as this, this sacrifice of Isaac is just kind of, it's slowly pushed upon, upon the reader as you begin to feel the pain and the confusion. In verse 7, Isaac says to his father, Abraham, My father, my father, dad, daddy, here's the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the lamb? Matthew Henry says it was a melting question which one would think would strike deeper into the breast of Abraham than his knife could ever into the breast of Isaac. You remember Jesus' favorite, seems to be a favorite term for God, his Father. Jesus kind of brings this term to the forefront of worship, Father. When he taught us how to pray, he said, we pray, our Father who art in heaven. This is an intimate relationship of love and trust. And you see that between Father Abraham and son Isaac as well. And you see the perfect trust of Isaac. He's starting to figure things out, isn't he? He's he's understanding that there's something going on that he doesn't know about yet. And yet he doesn't turn and run to back down the hill. He doesn't throw the wood down and take off. He trusts his father. And his father says, God will provide for himself the lamb. Isaac did the math. He saw all the things required. And there's one thing missing. And the father says, it's okay, son. God will provide for himself the lamb. So they both went together. Abraham was certain that he was going to follow through. And now it seems that Isaac is also certain that he's going to trust his father. And the Hebrew word that's translated provide throughout this chapter, God will provide for himself, is a word we talked about before. It just is the word to see. It's just a a simple Hebrew word. It means to see with your eyes. 
And in Genesis 22, it's the only place that it's ever translated anything but see. Certainly, I'm not saying it's a bad translation. When you see, you're, you're seeing in the sense of the Lord, you're also providing, absolutely. But you should know that what Abraham said is, God will see for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. In the Septuagint, Genesis chapter 22, it's always translated see in Greek. So certainly this is what the rabbis thought, was that the Lord would see, and in seeing He would certainly provide, but He would see a lamb for the burnt offering. In verse 9, they came to the mountain, they came to the place, Mount Moriah, and Abraham built the altar there out of stones, and he laid the wood in order on the altar, and he bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This was to be a living sacrifice. He was about to kill him. But he got up on the altar alive. On top of Mount Moriah. This was the place God had shown him. Again we see the great trust of Isaac. Isaac certainly knows now he's the sacrifice. This, this strong man or young man who carried all of the wood up the mountain. He doesn't run from this trial. He doesn't try to escape from his father. We don't know what else is being said, but he trusts his father. Abraham was 110 years old. Certainly Isaac could have escaped, could have overpowered him, and yet he submitted to the will of his father. He allowed himself to be bound. I think he probably climbed up on the altar himself. If you've ever tried to lift a person, that's hard. He trusted his father. He loved his father and he submitted even unto death. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? He knew that it was the will of the father and he obeyed in love. But then something happens as Abraham lifts up the knife to plunge it into the heart of his son. The angel of the Lord calls out and says, Abraham, I know you fear God and have would not help withheld your only son from me. The angel of the Lord. The pre-incarnate Christ. And when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you need to ask yourself, does this angel of the Lord accept worship? The angel of the Lord? When you see that, it's almost always the pre-incarnate Christ. Does he accept worship and does he speak as if he's God? And we see him speaking as if he's God. For this reason, I'm certain that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. He tells him, don't do it. And Abraham looks over and there's a ram. And he offers that instead of his son. The angel of the Lord provided a substitute for Isaac. The implication is obvious. This is a picture of the gospel. The Father, God, should slaughter all of us on the altar. Each one of us should be there being sacrificed, being burned. We should be slain. We should all pay for our sins and our rebellion with death. And all of us are by nature wicked and rebellious and selfish. But God provided a substitute 
It's what we call substitutionary atonement. Our sins are atoned for by a substitute, by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. The Lamb that was slain from the beginning of the world. No wonder John the Baptist cries out, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, of the world. And Abraham and Isaac went all the way in obedience to the Father. It's an example of faithfulness. It also points to the faithfulness of Christ. There's another way we explicitly see the foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's with the name and the place. Abraham called the name of that place, verse 14, the Lord will provide. Of course, the Lord will see in Hebrew. As it is to this day said, on the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. This in Hebrew could be easily rendered on a mountain, on the mountain, God will be seen. So think about this. This is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah in 2 Chronicles 3, we read that Solomon began building the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It's the same place, the same mountain where the Lord had appeared to his father, David. Where Abraham was sacrificing his son Isaac was the temple mount. We can go to that place today. You can go there. The temple was built on that same piece of dirt. Abraham was offering his son in 2100 BC. The temple of Solomon was built 1,000 years later. And 1,000 years later, Christ came to the earth and was often seen in the temple. You see, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it all pointed to Christ and His sacrifice. All the ceremonies of the temple, the worship in the temple, the relationship we have with God through Christ's life and death and resurrection is seen in all those types. No wonder when Christ died, the, the, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That system is over, never to be replaced. We have the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. It was all about Him, the Lamb of God. Pointed to Christ. There's certainly no coincidence that all of these things happened on Mount Moriah. Why did the, the Almighty God lead Abraham? He could have sacrificed Isaac anywhere. Why lead him to Mount Moriah? Because that clearly shows us the work of Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ who calls out to Abraham, 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 don't lay a hand on your son. From where he was, he could have looked and seen the place where he would later be crucified. A stone's throw away. What glory and majesty, what unity and wonder we see in the Word of God. Do we see the love of Christ and the love of the Father that He would make clear to all the world the wonder and the perfection of this eternal plan. No wonder Paul cries out in Romans 11 after detailing the, the wonders of our salvation. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has made known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. And amen. The last thing, I want to conclude with this. Look at verse 18, where the angel of the Lord, he says, I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that I will surely bless you. And in verse 18, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How are we blessed? Because we have faith in Christ. We see the sacrifice of Christ. The Lamb of God. No wonder John the Baptist was overwhelmed if he knew what we know. Seeing the man who was the Lamb of God. I say to each one of you today, like Abraham, in your heart run to the mountain of God. To Christ, the Lamb of God. Run to Christ. Don't reject the one who has made this love and sacrifice so clear. Don't reject the Son. The gate is wide. And the road is wide that leads to destruction. And many are they that find it. But the way is narrow. The road is narrow that leads to life. And few are they that find it. Just knowing the gospel is not enough. You must embrace the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You must trust him alone. Do not reject the one who has made this sacrifice, this love so clear to you this morning. Embrace Jesus today. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Come to the Lamb. He came as a Lamb the first time. He's coming again as a Lion in judgment. As a King. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Today, is the day. Bow your knee to the Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are humbled and grateful to hear your work, to know the, the wonderful plan of salvation that you have ordained from the very beginning of time, that the Lamb of God, your own beloved Son, would be slain for us, for our justification. And rise again on the third day. Lord, we have no hope to be right with you at all. We are depraved from head to toe, inside and out, apart from your good pleasure. Apart from a work of your Holy Spirit, we could not even believe. We pray that you would give us faith, that you would open our eyes, that we would believe and trust in Jesus Christ as John the Baptist did as well. We pray all this in the